You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents here on KWMR West Marine Community Radio. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a thriving ocean metropolis with ocean life above and below the surface, of which we're going to hear a little bit about today. On today's show, we'll get some recent updates from the sanctuary research team that was recently out at the Gulf of the Fairlands and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries and hear about what the team observed offshore, and that'll be later in the second half of the show. We'll hear some interviews I did with the team when they got back to Bodega Bay. For the first part of the show, I'll be exploring a topic we don't really like to see, but is a reality of our time. One of the greatest threats posed to whales worldwide is entanglement in fishing gear and marine debris. Scar studies show greater than 20% of large whales have entanglement scars. The whale entanglement team disentangles large whales with properly trained and equipped personnel and shares information to reduce the threat of entanglements in the future. I'm joined today by Peter Fulkins, who is a lead responder in California, as well as a trainer in addition to being an exceptional marine mammal illustrator. He has illustrated books and contributed to film and television. He's a founding director of the Alaska Whale Foundation and a life member of the Marine Mammal Center. And Peter is joining me live on the phone today. Welcome, Peter. You're live on the air. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much for calling in. What are the primary types of gear that whales in California get entangled in? Years ago, during the 1970s, uh, gill nets were a very common problem. Uh, But in recent decades, they seem to be uh, mostly entangled in various types of ground fisheries gear, such as Dungeness crab pots and and uh, spotted uh, uh, prawn uh, gear. From your experience of removing gear and seeing the types of gear and where whales entangle them, have you thought about ideas of how deer, uh, gear could be modified to reduce entanglement? Almost all of the animals that I've disentangled have involved a a product known as blue steel, which is a very strong, densely wrapped polypropylene line used by the crab fisheries. I've seen it across the mouth. I've seen it wrapped around uh, appendages and dragging off the tail. And the the description of it, blue steel, is that it's blue. And with this light blue line in the water, it doesn't contrast very well with the natural color of the uh, surrounding water. And so it's very difficult for whales, uh, baleen whales in particular, because they don't have echolocation, to see this blue steel line. And so one of the simplest solutions that I can come up with is change the color of the line 
to something that contrasts as much as possible with the surrounding water. Uh, in other words, go with a bright iridescent yellow or some color like that to uh, make it easier for the animals to see the line. Is this a recommendation that's been put forward towards fisheries and fisheries management in the West Coast? Uh, no, it hasn't. Uh, we've discussed it internally. Uh, I don't have a, uh, a venue in which to make a formal presentation to the fisheries, but I, I think it's an idea that could be sent to the manufacturer rather than to the fisheries, since the fisheries purchased this from the rope manufacturer. Are there certain times a year that are worse than others? It seems like there's almost a season to this unfortunate happening on the West Coast. Well, it also varies according to the length of the fisheries openings. In, in other words, if you have a Dungeness crab season that is particularly long, it stretches into that period during the northern migration of the gray whale when they're closer to shore where they're more likely to encounter the Dungeness crab uh, pots. And so if we see a Dungeness fishery that, say, is extended from March into April, May, and June, you see a dramatic increase in the number of, uh, of gray whales entangled in these uh, uh, Dungeness crab pot lines. Um, we, we have a situation here in California in which we have the transient uh, gray whales that go through twice a year, and uh, then we have the humpback whales and also the blue and fins where the Gulf of the Farallones, Channel Islands, Monterey Bay area are destinations for these animals where they come to feed. So with the gray whales, they pass through close to shore, encounter the stuff. With the humpbacks in particular, they come here and spend several months in this area feeding, and so as long as there is a, a fishery going on during the time that they're feeding, uh, the chances of getting entangled increase. So when the season ends, crab traps seem to be out there still, and I'm curious why they're left out there. It seems that there'd be a financial incentive to the fishermen to remove those traps. Well, that'd be a good question for the fishermen. Uh, one of the biggest problems in ocean pollution is derelict gear. That includes uh, seine nets, drift nets, gill nets, uh, crab pot gear that's abandoned, and so on and so forth. So it's, uh, it, it's an independent issue, this derelict gear pollution that uh, even goes well beyond the, the question of entanglements. I've certainly appreciated being out on the water with certain... Uh party boats that actually make the effort to remove gear out of season and have picked up pots along the way. I know it's dangerous for them as well in terms of rope getting entangled in props and really caught it, causing quite a bit of damage to boats as well. Talk about how a typical response goes. Like, you get a phone call, and what happens? The most important thing is for the responding party to get good documentation of the animal and to report it in a timely manner, and if they can, stay on the site. We get probably, oh, I'd say 10 times more reports than animals we can respond to simply because the quality of information we get is very poor. We've actually published a reporting card that we've got. I think we've got 25,000 of these things along the California coast that we put into harbor master offices and uh, boat la launches that actually list the information that is most useful for us who are responding. 
things like the location, uh, identifying the animal, an estimate of the size of the animal, describing the nature of the entanglement, or what is the color of the, the floats, and, and so on and so forth. Because with that information, it greatly increases the probabilities of our ability to recite the animal. And so once the animal is recited, then the, uh, the responding team does an assessment to get a sense of the seriousness of the entanglement, and they make an immediate decision if they should apply a telemetry buoy so that if they run out of time or if the animal bolts, they'll be able to track the animal and, and find it over time. After a telemetry buoy is on it, then we do a thing called kegging the animal. Kegging the animal is putting a series of large Norwegian-style poly buoys onto a working line that essentially slows down the animal so it's easier for us to come up and do a, an underwater video um, assessment of, of exactly the extent of the entanglement. This is done with things like GoPro cameras on the end of a pole and also surface shots. And lately we've been experimenting with uh, drones to fly over the top of the animal to see exactly what part of the animal is involved in the entanglement, how severe it is, uh, try to get an estimate of how long it's been on the animal, and so on and so forth. And then once all the information comes in from the assessment, it becomes a much better situation for the team to decide exactly how they're going to approach the animal to cut the gear off. And get a good picture of where the gear is. Now, in your response there, a lot of things came up that would be highly illegal for anybody to do around a whale. Can you tell us a little bit more about the certification and level of training that this group has in order to carry out this work? Well, the National Marine Fisheries Service has been very careful about who they identify as leaders of a response. Uh, in the North Pacific Basin, I believe there are nine of us that are at the uh, what they call the Level 4 designation, which means we're authorized to conduct a disentanglement. Um, and that covers all the way from San Diego. Keithiep has, has that designation down there all the way up to Alaska, where four of the nine are located in Alaska. So National Marine Fisheries Service is very careful about how they give out these, uh, these authorizations, which are defined as being a co-investigator on the Marine Mammal Health and Stranding Response Program permit for this specific activity. Uh, the leader of the permit is Terry Rowles, who's a veterinarian who's um, in the Silver Spring office in uh, uh, Maryland. And so um, the people that they choose tend to be those who have extensive experience with the animals in a very close proximity. In other words, through research or, or other professional uh, endeavors, um, they spend so much time with the animals. We're talking on the level of decades where they can get a sense of the animal. Uh, they can anticipate an animal that is upset uh, that might uh, lash out on an individual. Um, uh, the ability to estimate the severity of an entanglement, the ability to evaluate uh, if the animal is nutritionally distressed, uh, in other words, going through a very, very good uh, analysis of the animal, and also have enough wherewithal to be able to 
approach the animals to affect a disentanglement in a uh, safe and efficient way. Um, we are, we've gone through a number of trainings led uh, primarily by Ed Lyman out of Hawaii and Dave Matilla um, on the generally accepted approaches. But those of us that, that have this authorization have done it enough times that we're able to develop some new ideas of both approaches, types of tools, um, different strategies for, for making it happen to minimize the impact on the animals. And so it, it, it requires a, a tremendous amount of experience and reputation within the marine mammal community to be authorized to do this kind of work. It seems that each time there's probably an enormous amount of information that is generated and the response, and I'm sure there's a network for sharing in terms of how to improve responses and what types of research and what are the p- key pieces of information that really come out of each of these responses for future disentanglements? Well, that's a very big question. Uh, one thing that we've been able to do in California in particular is that the different teams along the coast are all alerted when there is a reported entanglement. And as the uh, process advances, we share ideas, We uh, the photographs that are coming in, we all comment on what we think is going on, the best approach to it. So from the very beginning, we're, we're doing an analysis to um, uh, come up with a, the best idea on, on how to respond to it. Uh, this particular incident that happened earlier this year started in April and ended in May, started in um, the Monterey Bay area. The telemetry on the animal gave us a tremendous amount of information that we'd never gotten before off of an animal having to do with what does the animal do once most of the entanglement is removed. And this animal moved down the coast and checked out almost every submarine canyon between here and the Channel Islands. And so we now have a sense of what this animal is doing looking for food and where it goes. Once it got down to the Channel Islands, we invited uh, Keith Yip from the southern team as well as some new people from the Channel Islands area uh, to come out and participate in the final operations period. So they were able to gain for their first time working on a humpback whale. Uh, We got underwater video, we got still photographs, we had a very extensive analysis on the degree of damage that is caused to the animal from the entanglement over a very well-known defined period. And we took identification shots and so on and so forth. And so the animal was disentangled and we thought that was the end of it. But wouldn't you know, just a few weeks later, the animal shows up again all the way in Monterey. And the photographs taken of the injury from the entanglement gave us a very good idea of the rate of healing on what was otherwise an extremely serious wound that certainly would have caused the animal's death. And so uh, we're now getting more and more information post-disentanglement off of this animal that helps us understand the kind of time frames involved in healing, the kind of behaviors the animal is involved in, does the entanglement impede behavior um, uh, for this animal in the future? I mean, it's just a tremendous amount of information that comes off of events like this. Really interesting. Are animals tagged after a release, or are re based on photographic identification by 
other researchers or party boats that are doing whale watching? The recites are all done from um, photographic-based mark and recapture. Uh, the permit that we're authorized to do the disentangling under does not include the authority to put on a tag for future assessment. So the permission associated with the permit ends when the animal is released and assessed as being fully fully free of the gear. Uh, we think it would be an interesting idea if part of our protocols were to apply uh, a suction tag or some sort of a way to track the animal going in the future so that we can, in fact, follow its, its health, probability for survival, and so on and so forth going forward. For those just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Peter Filkins, and we're talking about whale disentanglement. Peter is one of the leaders on the whale disentanglement team on the West Coast here and has been busy this year. How many calls a year do you get, typically? It changes with the fisheries openings and weather conditions and animals and the uh, cooperation of the public. What's happened just in the last couple of years is that the public has become much more attuned to these sorts of events. And so there is a, a higher number of reports of entanglements because people are looking. They're, uh, I guess we're being fairly successful at educating the public about what to do if you see an entangled whale. And so um, this year we've had an unusually high number of reports and responses. Um, in the previous decade, the number of reports uh, seemed to go up if the fisheries were ex season were extended. In other words, there was a Dungeness crab fishery that went uh, a couple months longer because there was plenty of crab out there. And so we had a higher number of gray whale entanglements because of that. The other thing that's going on is just in the last few years, the population of humpbacks has just exploded. Um, this is not just a local phenomenon, but it's true all over the world. People are all the way in Australia and Tonga and South America are all reporting unusually high numbers of humpback whales showing up. So... As the population of humpbacks and gray whales recover from pre-exploitation numbers, uh, we're quite obviously seeing an increased number of entanglements reported. Well, I'm assuming, too, that um, numbers have returned to higher numbers from previously before whaling, and fisheries have probably increased quite a bit since whaling ended. Well, the issue with the the fisheries is that the fisheries are becoming more and more stressed. Uh, in Alaska, we have a, uh, a particular situation in which, let's say, 20 years ago, somebody would leave Petersburg, go out and go fishing, come back with their catch, and then go back out again. But now it's very tightly managed to where there is uh, there are openings that last 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. So there's a very high concentration of... Uh, fisheries efforts. And when those happen, you end up with all of the fishermen out all of the time intensively for a uh, 48, 72, 96-hour period. And that um, generally leads to a high number of reported incidents of entangled whales. Uh, it, it just creates a nasty gauntlet for the animal that's uh, difficult for them to overcome. 
Often good-intentioned mariners, other fishermen, see something and try to do something immediately. I remember seeing a story a few years ago of someone attempting on their own to disentangle a gray whale they saw off a bodega. But they put themselves in quite a bit of harm, and as well as breaking the law. And what are your thoughts about that effort in terms of putting other whales at further risk in the future? Well, what we've seen, and unfortunately this is a little bit too common, they think that if you cut off as much of the line as possible, that that is helping the whale. But what we've seen is, and this is, this is an example of what happened in this April whale, is that the line can be wrapped around an appendage, a flipper or a fluke, in a way that it becomes so knotted and so embedded that the animal will die if you take off everything except that which is around the body. And so if, if someone is out there thinking that they're helping the animal by cutting off the net, They've also cut off the ability of the response team to get a working line onto the animal to go up and deal with the entanglement. When, when we go after these animals, we identify the net or the pot or whatever is dragging behind, and we use that as a working line so that we can get ourselves up close to the animal to assess exactly how severe the entanglement is. And once we can see how bad it is, then we try to come up with a solution that involves one, maybe two cuts to allow all of the line to come off uh, just by that one effort. But if people are hacking away at the lines dragged behind the animal, the worst part of the entanglement remains on the animal, and I've seen situations in which the animal then ends up dying because nobody was able to uh, complete the disentanglement. So it, you know, they think they're doing well, they're well-intentioned, but without the training, without the understanding, without the experience, they actually end up making it worse for the animal. If someone is on the water and sees something, instead of trying to do something themselves, what's the best thing they should do? Um, there are two best thing, or three best things they can do. First of all, uh, contact somebody of authority. That could, if cell phone coverage is available, you call the wet hotline, which is 877-SOS-WHALE. The next thing to do is get as much information about the whale as you can. That includes taking photographs, uh, video if you can, uh, making a little drawing of uh, where you see the line dragging behind the animal, the color of the buoys, and so on and so forth. And then the third best thing is to to the greatest extent possible, stand by with the animal so that, based on the phone call that happened earlier, the response team will be able to mobilize and get out to where the responding party is and then affect the disentanglement because we can find it pretty easily that way. And that's one reason why the entanglement this uh, last uh, April in Monterey was so successful is we actually had a round robin of three different whale watching operations that kept trading off uh, watching the whale until our response team got out there. So the best thing is to call the response line as quickly as possible. Second thing is to get as much information as possible. Third, stand by until we can get out there. Also, calling the U.S. Coast Guard on uh, VHF Channel 16, I believe, is another 
good way if you're on the water right away to, to yeah, alert yeah, someone. Coast Guard, if you don't have a cell phone, calling Coast Guard is the uh, second option. Coast Guard has been astonishingly good in this regard that um, uh, all of the communication centers for the Coast Guard know what to do. Uh, they have the wet hotline, and and they're they're quite, quite good at helping us out. How does it feel when you are part of a team like this and the final rope is released? Well, there's a high level of anxiety because of the safety issue that's involved. Mm-hmm. And so um, you're constantly at this high level of alert when you're up close to a whale and you've got these very sharp objects flying around and you've got multiple people you have to watch out for. And so once it's gone, the immediate feeling is sort of you can relax for a minute. And then soon after that comes the feeling of satisfaction that you did something good today. And um, it's it's more of a sense of of it's okay to rest. We, We don't have lots of jubilation. People are watching us, you know, they're hooting and hollering, but those of us on the boat are kind of looking at each other and saying, one, we survived, two, we did a good thing. That's great. I've heard stories of people, this is very anthropomorphic, but people saying they felt like the whale really slowed down and looked at them after if there was some effort like that where the whale was saved by humans. Have you ever had an experience like that? Um. Oh, boy, you're getting into an interesting area. Um, I try to avoid the anthropomorphic response as much as possible. But with that said, we have had very distinct experiences with animals in which it's difficult not to believe that the animal was aware of what we were trying to do and actually participated in their release. And there are stories like this that come from others uh, there's one in particular that I was involved in with a gray whale in the north coast where as we were approaching the animal from the side trying to get to the line, the animal would turn in front of the boat, which would allow the float to come away from the body and would be easier for us to attach. And this happened, oh, God, eight or ten times as we were working on the animal. Always the animal turned into our boat, the floats always came over closer to us and easier to get. On our April whale this year, uh, the feeling of everybody on the response was that this animal relaxed once we got our working line on it. It did not fight us, and that uh, we could hear the animal vocalizing underwater. And uh, it was very difficult to get away from the notion that this animal was very aware and really wanted us to get rid of this stuff. It's so fascinating. It's a very fascinating area just because it's hard to not think that they're mammals, but it's it's an interesting one. What we've never seen is after it was done, the animal runs off breaches to give us a thank you. Oh, that's great. That's never happened. And so um, uh, usually when the animal gets released, they, they bolt off. And so when you hear stories about animals breaching to thank, I don't think they have that same level of altruism. Wow. What what are the most common species? You mentioned humpbacks and grays. Are are blues ever tangled up in gear? Blue whales are so powerful that they can usually blow through gear um, pretty easily. Um, there are reports of blue whales getting wrapped up in gill nets uh, and derelict gear out in the open ocean. 
blue whales are also deeper water animals, so crab pots and things like that are less likely uh, to get involved. Um, like the humpbacks and the gray whales, which are more coastal species, uh, tend to uh, have bigger problems. On the East Coast, it's a huge problem with right whales. Right whales getting into nets and lobster gear and so on and so forth has a very serious impact on the survivability of that endangered species. Uh, we have also seen killer whales entangled. Um, occasionally we see dolphins involved in lighter gear. Um, turtles are also a big, big issue with, uh, with net problems. You've been working with marine mammals for years, observing them on the water, as well as being a part of the disentanglement team. What are recommendations you have or things you would like to see in the future of how to approach this issue from the the management level, both from fisheries as well as the response times or response teams? In the Upper East Coast, there has actually been a very positive and successful program for modifying gear, uh, particularly the lobster gear, to reduce entanglements with right whales. Uh, There was a report published, I think, as recently as last week, that assessed the effectiveness of these solutions, and it was a very positive report that it did, in fact, reduce the number of entanglements from that fishery. So what I would like to see from a high level of management is to be working with the gear manufacturers as well as the fishermen to uh, reduce the number of entanglements by gear modification and also fishing technique modification. Uh, That could be accomplished by reducing the number of pots that are associated with one string. Um, uh, I know in Alaska there was a problem where uh, a whale got involved with a gill net, and the fisherman thought that he could save his gear by winching in the net, and he ended up sinking his boat because he winched up the whale to the back of the boat, and it swamped his boat. And so communicating to them that if they call us to disentangle the whale, they're going to save more of their gear rather than trying to take a um, uh, an evasive action like winching the whale up to the back of your boat. Interesting. Well, we just have a couple minutes left. I just wanted to ask if there are any online resources or um, other information you'd like to direct people to in terms of learning more about this issue or seeing success stories that may have been published online. The National Marine Fishery Service has a um, uh, an excellent educational aspect to their websites, which includes uh, phone numbers of organizations to call for animals that are not just entangled but stranded on the beach or otherwise in distress. Uh, National Marine Fishery Service has, uh, I guess it's called NOAA Fisheries now, has been very proactive in educating the public in this regard. Um, The National Marine Sanctuaries programs, uh, Channel Islands, Cordell Bank, Gulf of the Farallons, Monterey, um, and so on. They also are very active in, in getting people to better understand the environment that they're stewards of. And so those are very good sources for information. Uh, I would caution people to uh, pay too much attention to some of the things that end up on YouTube and places like that. Um, there have been a number of stories that have come up 
that go viral about convert what we call convergent volunteers who go out there and think that they can jump into the water and cut away the uh, net and then make themselves into whale heroes by publishing it on YouTube. Uh, it's one, illegal, and two, there have people uh, who have died doing exactly that. And so um, we've had no death or major injuries from the official responders, but there have been deaths and injuries by people thinking that it's it's uh, an easy thing to do to jump in the water and cut an animal out of a net. This is KWMR, 90.5 Point Ray Station, 89.9 Bellinas, and 92.3 San Geronimo Valley. And Peter, you touched on a very interesting topic that has been on my mind recently with the advent of very accessible technology for people to uh, record things. And some people are just doing really stupid things out there and propagating it on the web, which really causes concern in terms of approaching whales on paddleboards, stand-up paddleboards and kayaks. And this season has been exceptional in that. So I appreciate you mentioning that, that we need to be observing the law and staying away from these animals for our own safety as well. Yeah, well, well, just last week, there was a whale in the Monterey Bay area that was struck by a vessel uh, that was getting way, way too close to a group of feeding animals. And something that bothers me perhaps more than anything are the people who promote the paddleboarding and the kayaking, think that, thinking that that's a benign way of getting up close to a whale. And so they see a group of feeding animals, they paddle up really, really close, and then they have a buddy take a photograph. It ends up on YouTube, oh my God, we were just out there paddleboarding and look what happened, when in fact it was a setup situation so the person could get the photo of being up close to the animals. And I, I think something needs to be done to calibrate those people because it's not good for the whales, it's very dangerous for them, and it encourages other people without experience around the animals to do really stupid things. I agree. We have a lot more education work to do on that. I know there's been statements coming out from the Monterey Bay Sanctuary about that, and uh, we need to really push that a little bit more. Peter, thank you. Thank you so much for talking today a little bit and being involved with this effort and sharing some of the the behind-the-scenes stories of interacting with these really amazing animals and you having the opportunity to help some along the way that may not have made it. My pleasure. All right. Have a great afternoon. You too. For folks tuning in, you've been listening to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stock, and I was just talking with Peter Fulkins, who is an illustrator but also a longtime naturalist uh, working with marine mammals and is a leader on the whale disentanglement team or the Whale Entanglement Team in California. That's an authorized uh, group of people that are volunteers authorized by the NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Service to assist in helping to disentangle whales that get entangled in gear unintentionally. So really interesting stuff. And we are going to take a quick break and come back in a few minutes and hear some updates from our sanctuary research team that have been out in the field out at the sanctuaries these last few weeks. Stay tuned to KWMR. I'm going to play a couple recordings that I did out in the field a few weeks ago. The Cordell Bank Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuaries, Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuaries in partnership with Point Blue Conservation Science 
have started their 11th year of monitoring at sea out in the sanctuaries uh, with a program called ACCESS, the Applied California Current Ecosystem Studies Research Effort. And uh, they had an exceptional week a couple weeks ago. So I caught up with a couple of the scientists and had a chance to talk with them. And so you're going to hear a couple interviews with them, including a teacher at sea that got to spend the week out with the team and hear a little bit of that's happening out on the ocean. My name is Danielle Lipsky, and I'm the research coordinator at Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. We're here in July during an eight-day research cruise, part of Access, and I'd love to hear some of the highlights of the week. How has it been going out there? It's been fantastic. We are on day seven of our eight-day cruise from July 17th to the 24th, and the weather has been incredibly cooperative. We've been able to complete all of our planned work, which has been fantastic, especially compared to our cruise in June, our first cruise of the year, where we had very challenging weather conditions, and we were not able to get all of our um, work completed. So this has been a fantastic trip. So give us an overview of, there's a lot of different science projects that are a part of this collaboration, and all of them have different applications with resource management. Can you give us an overview of the different projects that are being accomplished at sea? This is a partnership between Gulf of the Fairlands National Marine Sanctuary, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, and Point Blue Conservation Science. It's a very productive partnership where we're able to complete a lot of work on these cruises. And our standard protocol is that we take our NOAA research vessel, Fulmar, along planned, predetermined transects. And along each transect, we do marine mammal and seabird observations. So we're counting all the marine mammals and seabirds that we see. And then at some of the transects, every other transect, we're doing measurements to look at oceanographic conditions. And so this involves deploying an instrument called a CTD, which measures conductivity, temperature, and depth, so that we can look at the characteristics of the water column. And at those stations, we also do a couple different kinds of plankton toes. So with those toes, we are looking at the prey species that are in the water column that some of the animals that we're observing might be eating. So then we can tell what prey species, what species, and how many, how much of that food source is available for the animals that they're seeing, and where along the coast those um, concentrations, those hotspots of prey and animals are occurring. We're also doing sampling of the water column to look at ocean acidification. So we're taking water samples to look at the alkalinity of the water and how that might affect the species that we are sampling. Tell us about some of the highlights in terms of wildlife. It sounds like this has been a great cruise with lots of different birds and animals or mammals or what have you been seeing? Yes, it has been fantastic for sightings. We've seen a few, um, several different great observations. We, in our net toes, we've been seeing a high concentration of salps that are come up in the plankton nets. And salps are an invertebrate sort of look like a jellyfish or gelatinous, but they're related to tunicates. And uh, this is a much higher concentration we've been seeing than we normally would see. Um, normally, we'd be hoping to get a lot of krill because that's a very nutrient-rich prey species for some of these animals. Another thing we've been seeing, another invertebrate, is 
a species called Valella. Valella is the scientific name, and it's commonly known as sailors by the wind. And these are a, a hydroid species that floats along the surface, and we've been seeing them in individuals, but also rafting up. They're really neat. You might see them washed up along the beach sometime this summer, since we've been seeing a lot of them at sea. We've also been seeing a lot of common mers, and we've been seeing pairs of dads with their chicks. So the chicks have fledged and the dads are at sea with the chicks and the dads, we've been seeing them feeding the chicks. We've been seeing them with fish and other animals in their mouths that they're feeding to the chicks, which has been really neat. We've seen a high concentration of whales, blue whales and hump whales at the shelf break in a couple different areas. We've seen them mainly in the northern regions. Today we saw them at Cordell Bank. We saw a big feeding aggregations of thousands of shearwaters um, intermixed with whales feeding and sea lions as well. We also saw quite a few humpback and blue whales yesterday when we were in the Gulf of the Farallons proposed expansion area up north. So those, those were really exciting sightings for us. We got lots of great pictures and video. The scientists were all really excited. We've also been seeing uh, some algal blooms at the surface. We haven't been able to identify what species yet, but we also take phytoplankton samples that are th later identified to, to look at harmful algal blooms. Backing up a little bit to a prior cruise, just prior to this access cruise, but you also were involved in installing a sensor out at Cordell Bank to monitor water conditions regarding oxygen. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We actually uh, went by those buoys today, so we were able to see them out at Cordell Bank. But last month in June, we installed buoys out at Cord Cordell Bank to look at the dissolved oxygen in the water column. And we did this because we worked with an oceanographer at Bodega Marine Lab, Jean Largier, and he noticed that last year at their buoy off the coast here that they had seen unusually low dissolved oxygen concentrations. And he suggested that this might be occurring farther off the coast as well, including at Cordell Bank. And if it is occurring at Cordell Bank, then that could affect the organisms living there. It could be detrimental to those organisms. So for the first time, we've insta installed these sensors at Cordell Bank to look at whether or not, we're not sure, there is low dissolved oxygen at, the, at Cordell Bank. And what is the magnitude, what is the extent of that dissolved oxygen, how far, how much of the bank is it covering, and when and um, when and where is it coming onto the bank and perhaps retreating, how long is it staying at the bank that might be, um, that might be causing detrimental effects to those organisms that live at Cordell Bank. And those sensors come out later this fall, so we'll get a better overview of that later in the year. Yes, we will. That's We're, exciting. We'll stay tuned. All right. Now, regarding access, this has been going on for 10 years. This is the 11th year of these cruises, and this is the 39th cruise, which is phenomenal. And this has been a really important partnership to the sanctuaries and for Point Blue. How is some of the data that's gathered during these surveys applied towards resource management? The data has been incredibly useful to management. It's really important for us to be able to understand the health and the condition, status and trends of the animals and the resources in the sanctuary. A great example of how access has been used, access data has been used for management is uh, a few years ago, they're um, working with Point Blue and students at San Francisco State and professors at San Francisco State. Um, they looked at the 
blue whale concentrations from access data and also where their prey species were and were able to overlay that with where shipping traffic and shipping lanes are or were and they were able to um, analyze that data to show that the shipping traffic is overlapped with high concentrations of humpback whales. Subsequently, that data was used in a um, in a management effort to move the shipping lanes. They've since been narrowed and extended so that there is less overlap between hotspots for humpback, humpback and blue whales and um, shipping traffic. How about for you? What's been the highlight of the week? I have really enjoyed um, the marine mammal sightings that we've had and I was able to get some great video of dolphins bow riding off the vessel and also some great video of Mola Mola, the ocean sunfish that we've had. We've been seeing quite a few around um, along our transects and around the boat and today we had some great close-up um, looks at the Mola Mola so that was really fun. That's awesome. Well thanks Danny for sharing your time with us today. You're welcome. My name is Daniel Rivera. I am a biology and marine science teacher at El Camino High School in South San Francisco, California. So you were selected from many teachers to be a teacher at sea this week during this access cruise. How's the week been so far? The week has been fantastic. We have really lucked out on weather. Um, I was told uh, that last cruise it was very stomach turning and this the weather on this cruise has been phenomenal uh, very glassy seas swells have been really low um, so it's been it's been nice and we've seen a lot of different organisms on when we're out there so it's been awesome what types of activities are you doing while the ship is out at sea uh, there are several different activities that are happening on the boat at once so up on the the <laughs> flying bridge uh, is monitoring seabirds and marine mammals and which seems really tricky there's a whole host of codes that you have to learn and go through um, and the more time you spend up there the more familiar it becomes so I can't really deal with that so much because that takes a lot of training and time and it's only my first time doing it so I'm helping out on the back deck and we are doing CTD uh, readings so taking conductivity, temperature, depth readings um, with the CTD. That's it's actually called CTD, yeah. And then uh, phytoplankton samples are on the side of the boat. And we're also doing hoop nets, and then we're also doing a tucker trawl, which is basically a hoop net, but it opens up at certain depths um, to take different uh, plankton samples or marine organism samples. So, yeah, it's been pretty cool. So what, what are the samples that come up? Is it, It's kind of like Christmas when the net comes up. What's, what have you been seeing? Uh, we have a lot of salps, which are very gelatinous um, organisms uh, mixed in with krill. Uh, very, very salpy, so it's, it can be very heavy and gelatinous. We've gotten a few, we got a rockfish once, which wasn't supposed to happen, I don't think. I mean, it, it looks like a big gooey glop of mess, and it gets sorted, I was told, by several people back at the lab. So. Um, you know, it, it's plankton, so you can't tell what it is. You can tell some, you can tell the, the quill because it's you can tell with, with the naked eye. Um, but we don't have any microscopes on board, so I couldn't tell you exactly what type of plankton. But it's jars and jars full that we've been collecting. What's been the most surprising thing you've learned this week? How important uh, marine 
birds are as indicators to the health of our uh, national marine sanctuaries. Because when they're around in abundance, it tells us uh, it's a good indication that there is food or plankton um, in the ocean. So our primary producers, phytoplankton, are in abundance, which means the zooplankton are in abundance, which means fish will have food, and in turn, marine mammals will have food. So the whole food web, because we don't we're not in the ocean, we don't live there, we're on top. But when we have visual clues such as the birds, um, it's a good indicator that a lot of good stuff is happening. So, And I'm learning about all the different birds that are native uh, to the Farallon Islands, and then also birds that travel you know, thousands of miles, like albatross, and I forget some of the other, other names. Um, common mirrors are the ones that are native to the Farallons, but the sooty shear, I think, I forget the name. Is that yeah? Is that from New Zealand? One bird comes all the way from New Zealand. Yeah. I can't remember the name. Um, there's so many different species, and trying to get them all in your head in a couple of days is difficult. Um, so yeah, but that's really surprising. As a teacher, how does it? What is translating in your mind in terms of when you go back to school and how all this information will come out through your classes, through your teaching, or just your experiences? Well, I'm definitely going to tell them about the day-to-day -day life on a cruise such as the access cruise. Standard operating procedures, what goes on, how to do a CTT, uh, how we look for marine birds, marine mammals, who's in charge of what, who, the role that everyone plays. Um, I also would like to do some type of interactive. I was talking to a couple of scientists on board. Uh, maybe we could do some type of interactive like how to spot marine birds and mammals and these are the codes and that we use on board and anything that's going to get the students interacting with each other and me instead of just reading from a textbook is the way to go because they need that interaction they need to be involved um, they don't want to be just preached at all the time so I, I'm going to figure out some way to incorporate what we're doing on board as an activity in the classroom. A lot of people know about national parks because they're on land and they're a real celebrated treasure in the United States. But the National Marine Sanctuaries, they're in the ocean and there's only 14 of them. What are some ways you think that we can engage students and other people to understand more about and appreciate these National Marine Sanctuaries? Even people who I find live near water don't really understand the importance of our oceans. And I think the more education the more classes students have, the more access they have to the knowledge of the importance of oceans. Um, just because you, you don't live near an ocean doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. I mean, it affects weather. It affects everyone. Um, it helps regulate temperature. You know, it's just it, people need to know. And I think the more uh, education about the oceans that's integrated into younger classrooms, um, the more you'll get people interested because I don't think, I think people think it's, it doesn't affect them, but it does. So I think the more knowledge that that's put out there, the more you'll see interest in that happening. Any last words you want to share? Um, I think NOAA TGC is a great program and I encourage other teachers to look into it and I encourage other teachers to try to fit ocean uh, education into their curriculum, even if they don't teach marine science. Find a way. It's essential. Thanks, Daniel. Great to meet you. Likewise. 
Hi, Jenny. I'm Drew Devlin. I'm with uh, I'm a research associate with uh, Farallons Marine Sanctuary Association, and I work with Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary. And I've been working as a wildlife observer aboard the Access Partnership Cruise for the last week, and I get to do that. I'm privileged to do that two or three times a year. And I've been a marine educator working with the community and volunteers and kids for almost 20 years. One of the cool sightings that I heard about this week were these Valella Valellas, the by the wind sailors or sailors by the wind. And I've always, they've always been a little bit of a mysterious animal for us. Sometimes they wash up in the springtime and from my memory along the coast here, it's always been an animal that's kind of washed up on the shore and it was kind of like the indicator that upwelling season was starting, but it's late July. So there's probably a lot more I don't understand about these animals. What are they? Well, they're they're a really interesting animal. They're in the Nidaria family, which is jellies, sea anemones, and corals. Um, and they're really specialized. They are um, a hydro, hydrozoa. Um, it's a little cute little animal. It's probably no bigger than two or three centimeters, has a little flat disc, and then they have a, another little part that looks like a little sail. And, and they're this beautiful lapis blue color, clear to lapis blue color, and they um, their nickname is By the Wind Sailor because of this little appendage that is on the top of its flat disc that helps them propel through the water by the wind. And pretty much they spend their entire lives on the open ocean, um, but in the right winds they will be uh, pushed ashore to the inshore and eventually end up on the beach. We see them in huge numbers. like. This week we've been seeing them in the thousands. In previous last few years we haven't seen them so much and I just think the winds may have been blowing differently and they've been offshore at different places and haven't caught the right winds to be pushed into shore. Um, and they're really neat in that they stay out to sea their whole life. They're in tropical and temperate waters and found on you know all the oceans north and western hemisphere and one of the coolest things about it is that when they they develop they um, there's a little disc and it it develops polyps underneath on the water side and they will fall off and um, at that point they're asexual but then those little polyps develop split off and form egg and sperm creating the new um, mixing in the waters they mix up and become new polyps to develop into the Valella Valella, and when they develop, they might develop a right to left wind a sail or a left to right, depending. And so, in it's in a mixed group. And then when they come to the surface, when the wind blows, blows, they go in different directions. So they mix up, and they're not always sailing in the the same direction. That is so cool. And when they're in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere, they have different directions. So they do the same thing and then they mix up in, in the oceans. I wonder if that's a way to just diversify and, and spread exactly. themselves around more. Exactly. So, um, and what, one of the neat things that we found this week um, was we've been seeing them in the, the sooty shearwaters and the, and the uh, pink-footed shearwaters are in great numbers, as well as albatross, black-footed albatross, and that's one of the favorite foods of those birds. And today we witnessed a mola mola, the sunfish, eating one. And it was, I usually see the sunfish, you know, laying on its side, basking in the sun. Well, all week we've been seeing large numbers of mola mola at the Aww. surface. We attributed it to the great weather and the calm conditions, but what we learned today is they love to eat Valella Valella. And so they're cruising along today and all of a sudden we see them, the sunfish just 
poking its head up, and everywhere it was poking its head up and its mouth out of the water was a Valella Valella, and they were just sucking them up. And we got it on video. It was really exciting. What's been the highlight sighting for you this week? Since you've been out to sea for years, what's been the best thing for you this week? Well, I think the Mola Mola today eating the Valella was pretty... We were all really excited about seeing that. We've had some really great sightings of blue whales and humpback whales breaching, humpbacks breaching, and large numbers of birds. And Pacific white-sided dolphins just wanted to swim in front of the boat in two or three hundred in a you know, big pod. Dramatic numbers. It's been really beautiful out here. What would be something you'd want to share with people that don't get to see this stuff? Because this is all out in the ocean and pretty far from land. How can they get connected to it? Get out on the ocean. I'm San Francisco Bay Area and Bodega area, boat wa- whale watching boats in the the spring spring's windy but summer and uh early fall are great times to get out on the water and actually see the animals firsthand from you know the valella right now all the way to the the whales and all the seabirds that have these great migration great distances to come here and feed just you can go see all these animals off the shore just go walk the the coast and pretty soon Valella will be washing up onto the beaches because after they get blown up onto the beaches they stay there and and basically you know start to disintegrate so you can see them there I think just get outside this is a great area to live thanks Drew for coming on and sharing your news with us this week thanks Jenny I always enjoy talking to you and and really love just getting out on the sea and sharing it with people And there you have it, folks. That's what's been going on in the ocean for the last few weeks. And as you know, the ocean is highly variable. It can change at any time. Thank you so much for tuning in. Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month. And each show is saved as a podcast on the cordellbank.noaa.gov website. Or you can find the podcast in iTunes. Look for Ocean Currents. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.